welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm Ryan Hemmer, coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I don't have the rest of the gang here with me today, but what I have instead is a guest. And uh, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Paul Axton, uh, who is the author of The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation an analysis of the meaning of the death of Christ in light of the psychoanalytical reading of Paul. Uh, This was a book that came out in 2015 with TNT Clark uh, in their uh, theology series, and it recently came out in paperback. So now you can buy it even if you are a person and not a research library. Uh, But Paul is here with us today to talk about the basic arguments of the book, um, some of the kind of originating contexts of questions and problems that occasioned the the years he devoted to uh, researching and writing this book. Um, Paul is also the uh, founder of a, uh, I'll let him describe it later on, but I'll do my best to describe it now, a in-person, interpersonal, online but also not online community um, called Forging Plowshares, which um, teaches classes. It uh, runs a community garden. uh, It uh, has a blog and a podcast uh, that are all devoted to trying to tease out and explain and explore and develop uh, the principles of nonviolence that are Uh, contained within and entailed by the life of Christ. So we're going to talk about forging plowshares a bit toward the end too. Uh, But because this is systematically, we're going to do all the heavy theoretical lifting before we come back down to earth. So Paul, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Ryan. your your uh, your book is out and available for mere mortals to buy now. I think I saw it on Amazon, and the Kindle version was under twenty dollars. Yes, yes, that uh, everybody can get one now. <laughs> uh, so I I think you know our our audience is accustomed to us spending five to ten minutes just being sort of silly uh, and talking about. Uh, cooking and or Hallmark Channel holiday specials, drinking games and uh, baseball. Uh, But baseball is over now. And, uh, you know, hockey has started, but there hasn't really been enough to happen yet to, you know, warrant a whole lot of excited conversation. So if it's all the same to you, I think we just jump right in. Okay, well, uh, I'm I'm sure that I could have come up with some witty banter if you well, had given I mean, me the opportunity. Uh, I I do love witty banter, so anything you want to throw in in the midst of the conversation, I'm. Uh... Uh, well, I can tell you that hockey's not real big in Missouri, uh, which and... is sad because the Blues are uh, are predictably okay. As you know, I'm kind of a one-sport sort of guy. I play racquetball. In fact, I just played a game of racquetball. Uh, and that is the in Moberly, Missouri right now, that is the sport to be in, other than pickleball. Okay. I, I do remember pickleball from, uh, from gym class. It's sort of uh, ping-pong and tennis. For very old people. <laughs> yes. uh, did you win uh, your racquetball game? 
Uh, I won a game of racquetball out of the many games we played. Who won the match? Well, we we're not talking about that. I actually, <laughs> Is I that actually, a bad omen. That it's a it's a it's a game that uh, I, I've encountered a group of people that play much better than I, and so when I just get a game, I'm pretty happy. Okay, well, that's maybe it's a a positive sign then. Uh, I can claim to be the the oldest player among the group that I play with. So Okay. Well, I'm, I'm working handicap clearly. Well, you got to factor that into your score then. Uh yeah, yeah, that should give me 10 points right there I, we go. I'm not sure how the point system works, but 10 points seems reasonable to me. <laughs> uh so this book um how's that for a segue? Uh, this book, The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation, this grew out of a uh, doctoral dissertation. Is that correct? Yeah, it did. I don't know if you want the whole story, but it actually was part of my research. I began uh, in Japan. I had encountered the work of uh, Takeo Doi, who is a psychoanalyst and had done a major work in the genre in Japan called Nihonjin Ron, which is just the theories of Japanese-ness. But in this genre, Doi was the best-selling author. And so for Japanese, it was really Takeo Doi who is telling Japanese, this is who you are. And so as a missionary, I thought, well, maybe I better find out uh, you know, what this is. And as I began reading Doi, um, I had to plug into Freud because Doi is a Freudian psychoanalyst and his own teacher, Kosawa, had actually gone to Vienna when Freud was in Vienna and proposed uh, an alternative to the Oedipus complex to Sigmund Freud. And I don't know if you're familiar with the history there, but Freud at one point was concerned that most of his disciples were Jewish. And so he was eager to have any, you know, non-Jewish followers. And he then accepted uh, Kosawa's picture of the Ajase complex, which is a completely alternative story an alternative myth, if you will, in which the focus is not on the father, but on the mother. But to make a long story short, what I decided had happened, and no one else, I've never published on this part of my work, I've, but it, uh, that, and what I've determined happened is that, that with Doi, uh, Kosawa's pupil, and Kosawa, they've privileged the death instinct in such a way that it, it is completely opposed to or an undoing, an alternative to a Freudian psychoanalysis. And so in Japan, there is uh, the term amai. And by the way, none of this is in the book, so I'm, I'm giving you free material here. Well, this is terrific. Uh, there is the term amai, amayaru, which many have said this is, you know, for doi, this is the key term to understanding the Japanese society and Japanese psyche. Um, and what I've decided doi has done, he's just taking Freud's death drive 
and used it as an explanation of uh, my, which in Freud, you know, that's this is he calls the uh, fusion of the death instinct and the pleasure principle, uh, the nirvana principle. Well, he's, he's saying that, he's calling it that, precisely because of the Buddhist, Zen Buddhist understanding here. And that's, you know, where Doi calls it that as a kind of pejorative that, oh, the death instinct is dying with, you know, or, or the nirvana principle is dying with pleasure. Well, in Doi, he there's literally a passage in which he describes the Nirvana principle as the entire goal of life. So he's doing Freud, he's following Freud throughout, but he's throughout flipping the the whole understanding on its head that he's uh, reversing it. So, so what you get in the uh, anatomy of dependence in Takeo Doi is an explanation of all things Japanese, strangely enough, through a Freudian psychoanalytic lens. And this, you know, at some level, this wouldn't be important, except this is truly, other than people understanding that it's through Freud. I mean, I don't know, you know, Doid mentions Freud, but uh, so that there is this understanding of who Japanese are, even on the part of Japanese, that is filtered through. Uh, the latter half of Sigmund Freud. Um, now, what you do with that, I don't know. That was my so that was my original impetus into psychoanalysis. I had no particular interest in psychoanalysis, but this then led me to reading Freud, and of course, the the Freud that I had to that I had an interest in was that that is developed by Doi, and that is the focus on the death drive, the death instinct, which only comes in Freud with beyond the pleasure principle, the latter half of Freud, you might say, the the part of Freud that Western psychoanalysts, in fact, mostly reject, other than Jacques Lacan and Slavoj Zizek. And so I was well into this research. I think I had already even started the dissertation. I I can't quite remember how it all unfolded. I wasn't originally going to deal with Zizek, but Zizek, of course, turns out to be uh, the, he makes Lacan accessible, that Zizek writes in English primarily, uh, and uh, lays out then uh, understandings of Lacan that you you may not get elsewhere. So what's happening in part with Lacan is that his own son-in-law is kind of the keeper of the Lacanian texts. And it's only and so Zizek went and studied uh you know Lacan in France and he had access then to these Lacanian manuscripts. And and that but was with Elaine Miller? So, Elaine Miller, yeah. yeah that 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 uh that and he, as Zizek has said, he said they started reading, you know, Lacan uh, in the former Yugoslavia. He and his friends were, were and they, he said they, it was totally inaccessible to him. But then when he goes to France, that, that, so he always says that the understanding that he has of Lacan is through his son-in-law. And so the, there is a, a, the, the sense that Zizek 
makes, he is kind of the interpreter he's done in the United States or in the rest of the world, what, you know, the Lacan's son-in-law did in France, has made Lacan accessible. And so that was my entry point into uh, proposing a dissertation uh, on, the, on the topic. So, so you're in Japan, you, um, owing to accidents of biography, you find yourself uh, needing to learn about psychoanalysis. Uh, that brings you to Freud. And there's this element in Freud, the, the, the death drive, the Thanatos, that's, that's sort of under, underplayed, underexamined, underdeveloped in psychoanalytic li- literature outside of Lacan. So you turn to Lacan, uh, but Lacan's writing in obscure French, and even people who speak French don't understand what he's saying. So you find of all, of all the unlikely people, uh, the sort of celebrity philosopher Slavoj Žižek as uh, as the authoritative interpreter of Lacan to English. Is that the story so far? That's the story, but understand when I discovered Žižek, he was not yet a celebrity. Okay. Uh, I was was reading him very early on, um, and uh, my, partly this, I I was in conversation with my uh, nephew, who who is now teaching at uh, Amherst University and is a Japanese historian, but uh, he was also there living at actually the college I, I'd started in Japan. And I think he had introduced me to Zizek, but very early on, I think uh, Zizek's first public, uh, you know, the, the, the ticklish subject, I think, was the first thing I picked up of Zizek. And so it, it was a very interesting development that as Zizek published more stuff, and of course he's just touching on this lightly in the ticklish subject, but he's going, as he's developing, I'm reading what he's putting out. And, and in the meantime, I've you know begun PhD work at the University of Nottingham, which when I began, there were, there, you know, at that point, uh, radical orthodoxy, uh, Connor Cunningham, uh, in particular, um, had, had not come, you know, he was not at Nottingham, but in the process, meanwhile, uh, that, that became the university of Nottingham, uh, uh, John Milbank located there and John Milbank brought along several of his disciples who I think Connor Cunningham is sort of the right-hand man in many ways. And so that several things came together in process that I could not have foreseen this happening because I, you know, to study Zizek at this point in time, uh, among any other group of people, you understand this was as early, this was 2003, 2004, very early on. There was no one who, who, was clued into this to the degree that these guys were sure and so it as radical orthodoxy is developing zizek is publishing his stuff and i just happened to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time (laughs) depending on how how one views what i've done but it seemed very you know that it was serendipitous that the way that things came together so 
if you if you're going back as you've just sort of traced the the kind of intellectual biography that brought you to writing this dissertation uh i th- i think it's important to remember it's a dissertation in theology right mm-hmm. uh and and so one might ask okay the the names you've listed takeo doi sigmund freud jacques lacan slavoj zizek um I've run out of names, but I haven't named a theologian yet. Uh, or as far as I know, anyone who even notionally believes in God. Uh, and so I guess my, my, my next question really is about the, what, what is the, theolo- the organizing sort of theological problematic that uh, doing this heavy intellectual lifting in the psychoanalytic tradition allowed you to kind of intervene upon you know what is what is the theological question that that drove you to these figures and this tradition that sort of at first glance doesn't doesn't have a sort of obvious utility for theology i I always think that i'm probably the last person that can explain the genealogy of my own development but several things had come together Uh, first of all it as you're reading Freud, of course, the focus on death, death drive, that you're, the, the whole picture there uh, is that one in some way is, is deceived. And so a particular reading of the importance of the role of death, particularly as, you know, as it unfolds in Genesis and Romans 7, but the, the theologian that brought my own awakening, I might say, and I'm not Moltmannian, but it was it was Jurgen Moltmann, and I understand I uh, I understand all the problems with Jurgen Moltmann, but for me he uh, woke me from my dogmatic slumbers because there was a side to theology, uh, in particular in you know in his own picture you know his own description of his dealing with Freud, uh, in his theological work in which the role of death, and of course, I think it's overplayed, it's Hegelian, uh, but, and of course, that's what Zizek is, a, is really a Hegelian. He would describe himself as Hegelian. And so the theological link may be there, that it, even though I don't, I think I reference Moltmann maybe one time in the entire book, but the significance of the death of Christ as it's worked out in a heretical frame, I think, by Hegel and by Moltmann, is a very different outworking of an understanding of the death, of the meaning of the death of Christ, of atonement theory. And so uh, that was probably my entry point, recognizing, first of all, here in Japan, a real-world situation in which death is, in fact, in the religion, in Buddhism, in the ethos, the understanding, in Amai, in the ethics, is it is the prevailing, in a real-world sense, the controlling and prevailing orientation. And then to encounter that theologically in someone like Jürgen Moltmann, uh, and, and then being led back to passages that are describing, you know, what is the meaning of the death of Christ? How does the death of Christ in some way undo, you know, it, it, it is a process that 
I think is is a, a salvific in a healing sense. It is a resolution to the human predicament. It is a resolution to the human problem. And so I was reading, you know, especially a particular reading of the early chapters of Genesis, of, of Genesis chapter 3, and then a rereading of the Apostle Paul, perhaps uh, in a way that, as far as I know, other than, than uh, someone like Moltmann, uh, it was not doing this. So those things sort of came together uh, in my own project. So let's, let's turn to the book. Um, the Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation. So it, from, the, from the title in and of itself, you've, are, you've already sort of specified what, what uh, the context of, of this work is, which is to try to analyze the meaning of the death of Christ, as you've just said. But then you also say that there is a psychoanalytic reading of Paul that um, is, is the, the, the context for this new analysis of the meaning of the death of Christ. So uh, you, we've, we've talked about, uh, in broad strokes, we've talked about Freud and Lacan and Zizek. What is the, what is the interest in Paul among uh, psychoanalysts? Well, and this uh, needs to be nuanced very carefully because, first of all, I think that what has happened in the history of theology is an unfortunate departure from what Paul is actually doing. Uh, that it, what is included, you know, in passages, however you might include it, uh, is a, a human interiority. That is, that he's describing what's happening in, in inside of someone. So that it's psychological or it's psychoanalytic, at least in some sense of the term. So that, to my mind, the, the uh, psychology and psych, psychoanalysis, or the healing to be brought to human interiority, not to simply leave it there. I don't. I don't mean to make it simply that, but that, in some way, I think has been largely excluded or ignored or underdeveloped. So what I see happening in psychoanalysis is a development of a domain that is properly theological. That is that people are sick. They, they, have, they need therapy. Therapion is a, is a very good biblical word. Healing is, is what Jesus does. And unfortunately, I think that we do not picture salvation in terms of this healing. Certainly that was true of the early church and Irenaeus and the early church fathers. They're thinking of uh, salvation very much in, in terms of a reorientation away from a lie to the truth. And so the, there is an inherent development in psychoanalysis that I think is uh, filling in where theology left off because of a historical turn to, uh, especially in atonement theory, to an understanding of the death of Christ that is primarily a legal transaction. Uh, that is, you know, penal substitution in, in Calvin and even divine satisfaction in Anselm. 
So, um, so you so you see these these uh, thinkers as as bringing forward and developing um, a sort of forgotten element of theological reason, uh, specifically as it relates to an, an understanding of of sin. Mm-hmm. So so conceiving of sin less in terms of cosmic transgression um, and more in terms of the the actual disintegration of integral interiority. Mm-hmm. So then there's a salvation element to this, uh, that if you reconfigure uh, what sin is, then at least the healing element of salvation, as you've just described it, is a, is, uh, has to be, in, in some sense, its basic shape determined by whatever you say about sin. So if you're going to describe sin in psychoanalytic terms, in terms of this, this breakdown of, of authenticity or breakdown of, of the kind of integral relatedness and proportion of, of one's interior self, then salvation too is going to have to be a, a, a bringing back together, a kind of reorientating, a, a reconstruction of of what's been broken is that correct yeah the 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 entry point here obviously from a a human perspective is well here's what's gone wrong here's what's wrong with us uh and and if you're not a christian you know somebody like zizek is simply working with the elements that uh of a of a failed humanity i think is what we would would say what I'm trying to get at is that one can be overly negative about this. That salvation is is a fullness of humanity, a fullness of participation in the Trinity, that in no way can be predicted or predicated upon a psychoanalytic understanding. Uh, but what the psycho, as you've described it accurately, I think the psychoanalytic understanding, just as salvation from sin is a pointer or a beginning point to a recognition of what the fullness of Christ, of the the fullness of humanity that we have in Christ might look like. In other words, the the danger is that we don't just want to say picture salvation as a resolution to the problem of sin. Of course not, yeah. And that's why I sort of specified the uh, salvation in terms of the sanons or in terms of the, the... the therapeuon to to use your Greek terminology that that obviously that's not the totality of what a Christian means by salvation or by grace. Then, in addition to healing, there is elevating, even in Calvinistic terms, right? In addition to uh, the penal substitution, there's also union with Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the the, the Getting clarity about one does not have to mean uh, a, f- a forgetfulness of of the other. Um, it can, <laughs> and, and perhaps often does, uh, but mm-hmm. but it seems to me it, it it need not. But I I take your point that that um, just because you're pairing sin and salvation, even in the very title of the book, doesn't mean that the the entire project is overdetermined by um, salvation merely as a response to sin. And of course, the historical problem is that in trivializing or misunderstanding a biblical picture of sin, which is what I think has happened, that in some way 
Either we've made sin a mystery, as in Augustine's original sin, um, or we've, uh, and, and then once you've made it a mystery, that may be the, the major problem, uh, then the resolution to it is a mystery. So we have a mysterious problem and a mysterious answer in Christ. And I think that the Bible is actually all about telling us, no, here is the nature of this problem. Here's the genealogy of the problem. And here is how Christ addresses the problem, and that we can actually articulate that. I think that what has happened in theology or in you know, certain uh, segments of, of a theological understanding is that we're simply working with a transaction between God and, his, and, and Christ that in some way escapes us. It does not address the human predicament as it actually exists. And therefore, not only is sin made a mystery in original sin, but then we really don't know how salvation in any articulate sense or, you know, in a detailed sense is a resolution to the problem. So let's move past the veil of mystery then. Um, you've, you've already sort of uh, pointed at a few um, citations, uh, Genesis 3, Romans chapter 7. Um, what is the what is the biblical structure of sin as you as you present it, or as as you see the psychoanalysts presenting it? That it is a deception. That in Genesis three, that sin is the the lie of Satan. You know that you will not die. In various places in the Old Testament, particularly a messianic, the messianic passage that I think may be the key messianic passage that is utilized by the writers of the New Testament, is Isaiah 28, in which sin is described in terms of a covenant with death. Um, But again and again, sin then is pictured uh, with uh, deception. It's linked to deception, that the grave is is even pictured as a, a, a prostitute luring people into death or the grave. So that sin... Certainly, then, as it is developed by Paul, and I believe that Paul in Romans 7, but in other places, he, it, uh, he's developing, and I believe it is a commentary on Genesis 3, which I think that, that it's not just Romans 7. I think that when Jesus or when other writers of the New Testament talk about sin, it's always with the background of Genesis 3, but in particular, Romans 7, then is Paul's exegetical development of the meaning of Genesis 3 universally. That is, here's what happened, and he said, you know, that sin has deceived me in regard to the law. And so as Paul, we, we've missed this, or, or some segments of theology have assumed, our problem, first of all, is the law. That's not what Paul says. He says the, the law is holy, just, and good. Or they've pictured, you know, in other words, it's the two things. Sin deceived me in regard to the law. And, and he shows that or he develops that in Romans chapter 7. So let's, let's talk about that development a little bit because um, wh- one of the things that seems obvious to me um, is that whatever the the nature of the intertextuality between Genesis 3 
and Romans 7, that there is a, um, uh, let me put it this way, you're not going to be able to uh, hide from Paul's inner life when you read Romans chapter 7. Um, that, you know, if you're going back to Genesis 3, you know, you don't, you don't really get, feel like you're ever on the inside with Eve or with Adam. Um, you, you're sort of, you're sort of watching what's happening. Um, and you, and you can sort of follow the, the causal sequence, um, from A to B to C. But, but in Romans chapter seven, it seems like Paul is really giving us, um, a, a glimpse at what's going on in his own head. Um, and so the commentary is, is less, um, is less about say, just explaining what the text of Genesis three means so much as, um, letting oneself be the exegesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, get, giving the readers a window into the role and function of the kind of governing dynamics and mechanisms of sin as they work themselves out, not in terms of the externalities of, of ritual holiness, but in terms of one's own sense of self, one's own sense of wholeness and integrity, uh, that he, he really, maybe for the first time, I don't know, I maybe probably wouldn't say that with any real conviction, but certainly the most memorable time in the New Testament, that we really see... Um, we really see sin from the inside of a person. Uh, the, the things that you can't see just by bumping into someone on the street, um, the, the, the things that are, don't have external markers but are private, it seems that Paul is making them public. Mm-hmm. So, and, and let me then put, put it into put the proper context. That Paul is, I think, describing who he is and who you know, the in human interiority, I think it is a text about Adam, and it's a text about uh, all people, including himself, but a, an understanding that he's come to subsequent to being a Christian. That is that Romans 7 is describing a realization of human interiority prior to being in Christ, but from the perspective of one who is in Christ. That one who is in the midst of this thing can't sort it out in the way that Paul has. Paul, before he became a Christian, could not have told us what he's telling us in Romans 7, even though it is not, he's not describing his Christian life, but he's describing who he was or who we all are uh outside of Christ. So in that sense Romans 7 is not a text uh, about human, you know, uh con- you know the the conscious psyche. But I think in fact he's uh talking about things that are not fully we're not fully aware of and making that which is unconscious conscious. He's describing then in other words if you're in the midst of a deception well, you don't know that it's a deception and you don't know how it works because that's the whole point. So, and this is, you know, people criticize uh, Boltman, but actually I think you can almost read Boltman and say, well, wait a minute, uh, what Paul is doing in describing the split self, you know, the I that does what he does not want, and uh, that, that split self 
is, is not simply an agonistic struggle uh, that anybody would recognize, but I think it's only one that a Christian would recognize. So uh, let's let's bring um, the, the psychoanalyst back in here. Um, I, I I know from what little what little I am aware of of Lacan and of Zizek, um, they both have a kind of fascination with this sort of nexus of biblical texts. Um, you know, Lacan has a has a sort of Catholic upbringing, and so it's it's not a mystery why he um, was aware of this tradition. Um, but they but they seem to seize on it as as a as a way of explaining the the sort of formal theory that they're putting forward uh, in psychoanalysis. So how do you see the interaction or how does the book explain the interaction between uh, the, the sort of structures of psychoanalysis as we would have them in Freud or Lacan or, or Zizek and um, the, the texts as we have it in the New Testament? How, how do yeah, they both, in particular uh, help? Well, they both, Lacan gives us a reading of Romans 7 in which he just inserts his own theory that in place of sin, he says, you know, he, he puts the thing. Zizek does a similar thing. He gives us a reading of Romans 7 in which the, the registers, or the Freudian registers, uh, are placed in the, a reading of Romans 7. Now, they're both working, I think, from that presumption. They never spell this out in any great detail. So I take their reading and I spell it out. I say, okay, here is the implication. Here are where the three Freudian registers fit into the three parts that Paul is talking about. So if you look at Romans 7, some of this is in Zizek. I think it's implied uh, throughout. But what I'm doing is filling in and saying, okay, here I'm drawing this out in a way that that makes sense of it in a, in a more complete way. So the law, first of all, is there in Romans 7. And of course, in Freud, this would correspond with, you know, the, the superego. And in Lacan, Lacan's going to take the Freudian registers, he's going to change the name that this in Lacan is called the symbolic. And this is important because Freud, you know, was always imagining that this was in some way some sort of cosmic thing that he had hit upon, that what was true in the psyche was true in some way of some sort of cosmic force. By calling it the symbolic, what Lacan is doing, what Zizek is developing, is linking the law then to human experience, to language. And so the the symbolic realm is the realm in which this is mostly taking place. The lang- and so law, you know, when you're reading Romans 7, what we have to be aware of, that the one who is deceived by sin does not have proper access to the law, let alone God. There is, you know, God doesn't, for the most part, is absent in Romans 7, but the focus is upon the law. But even the law then is misunderstood because sin deceived me in regard to the law. This is precisely what Lacan and Zizek are describing, that there is, you know, what is the law? Well, it's the, the 
in in psychoanalysis it is that punishing part of you know it is the superego it is the obscene usually an obscene superego voice uh that you're as freud will describe it it is the place from which moral masochism arises so we shouldn't think of human conscience as if it gives us a proper understanding of morality either in paul or in freud freud is going to describe our morality as our immorality Hmm. that is that what we conceive of as moral is in fact this perversion of the superego this punishing presence lacan you know we'll we'll work this out and of course zizek works this out even even further politically the a, a, a neat way to say it is that the god that we would equate with the law is a pervert is perverse this is zizek's language so there's regis- there's the first register the second register is the ego this one you don't even need to translate because that's the very word Paul uses, the word ego or I in uh, Greek. But Lacan will change the name to the imaginary. And of course, what it, the, the meaning is there in the name. The ego is not a reality. And this is, he, he's, he is going, he's taking Freud in places that I think it's a, it's a reading of Freud that is true to Freud. You know, Lacan will claim he never did anything original. And in a sense, he's right, because I think the implication of what, what Freud is doing is to deny reality to these structures, to any of them. Uh, but he, he was slow in coming to that. And so Lacan just makes that leap and says, this is not a reality, this I, this ego, this projection, this mirror image is the way he describes it. in human development and so the struggle throughout Romans 7 the word I appears some 20 times that correlates to what's happening in Genesis with the fall of man the first word that Adam speaks is the first time that I appears you know after the fall it is I ran I hid I was afraid you know I, I was naked he uses the word I four times. I think the writer is telling us something about what happened, you know, in conveying this that the human interiority is taken on a new shape. Paul is reduplicating that in Romans 7 with his continual repetition of the I. Uh, there, there is then the setting up of desire. And of course, both in Genesis and Romans, desire is the dynamic controlling the whole thing. And so the question is, well, what do you desire? Well, ultimately, it is this imaginary object. It is the thing. It is this un, un, unattainable, you know, being uh, that we call ego or I. So there's the two main, the, the interplay is between the law and the ego. But of course, the production what is actually produced in this, Paul calls the body of death. Genesis, you know, they ate of it the day that you eat of it, you will die. They experience shame and falling apart that uh, they, you know, they run and hide. 
And so it's death, but it's not simply, oh, that Adam dropped dead, but that he began to die. He began to take death up into himself. Paul calls it this body of death. You know, who will rescue me from this body of death? So the dynamic, this is the third part of the register. This is uh, what Freud called the death drive or you know, Thanatos. And uh, Lacan will just rename it the real. And what he means by this is not simply that it's reality. In fact, it's a kind of unreality. But this is the controlling factor in the human orientation is death. Not death as something that you're conscious of. Not death as something, because with the real, with this orientation, we've passed from human consciousness to unconsciousness. This is the part of the lie that is denied. This is repression. This is, you know, what is suppressed. So part of what Freud is positing is the human unconscious is the place where the real action is at. We don't know why we're sick. We don't have a diagnosis. Uh, and Lacan is saying, well, here, and, and I think Paul is saying, well, the problem is that we are taking death up into ourselves, that we, in the words of Christ, are the living dead. So it's in that analysis, it's very it's very clear to me how the sort of explanatory range of psychoanalytic theory, especially as it's sort of mediated from, from Freud to Lacan to Zizek, uh, allows you to have a real insight into what's going on in those, those passages and gives you, um, gives you a view of sin that is uh, quite literally deeper, right? Um, But neither Freud nor Lacan nor Zizek uh, are Christians, um, and in fact, none of them seem to have any kind of uh, clear program for what one ought to do about this, and actually have a kind of resignation about it. Mm -hmm. That in expositing um, the death drive and the and and laying bare. Uh, and visible the all of the myriad ways in which uh, the death drive is determining and overdetermining our desires and our actions and our uh, revulsions and our desires. Um, it seems so pervasive and so all-encompassing that there's very little, if any, possibility held out for anything beyond it. Uh, I mean, even therapeutic intervention is is seems often a way as a way of uh, managing one's symptom rather than of alleviating it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, in in the book, then how how do you see Paul as answering back to this psych psychoanalytic reading of Paul that um, they they bring this um, profound depth of analysis to bear upon uh, the, the, the Hebrew and Christian tradition as it relates to sin, how do you see Paul as answering back uh, such that Paul is it going to be able to, um, to deny that this death instinct or this death drive is the last word in the, in the matter? Yeah, and, it, and maybe it needs to be emphasized that Zizek, Lacan, Freud, for them, 
this is everything. Sure. What I've described so far that, you know, this is the Zizek for, to undo the death drive. Well, that's an impossibility. This is, in a sense, he projects this. In the end, he ends up being very Freudian. You know, Freud is projecting Thanatos and Eros as these cosmic forces. He's doing that in a kind of mystical religious sense. Zizek does the same thing, but from the opposite perspective. He's saying, well, we have the human subject. This is the only way we have a human subject. And he projects this reality then back out onto everything. Now, I, and I'm always a little, you know, he, this is his turn to German idealism, to Schelling and uh, to Hegel, because that's really the, their, his reading of these guys, that here is the shape of reality if what we've just described is the case. And so the, what Paul is doing is in chapter eight is undoing what he did in, he's saying, okay, here's the resolution to the problem of death. Here is an alternative reality uh, that thank God I have been rescued from this body of death, that through the law of the life of the spirit, God has rescued me through Christ Jesus. And so I'm, my reading of Romans 8 is, and I think this is true to, you know, it's actually there in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that death then is displaced as the orient, orienting factor. It's no longer that we're producing death. That uh, if we are oriented to death outside of Christ, if that's the uh, a controlling factor, what Paul is describing in great detail is new life in the spirit, even to those realms of unconsciousness, that the spirit's groanings then surpass our human ability to articulate it. So it seems that Paul is also acknowledging, even in uh, the redeemed person, the, there, but the, this depth is not an empty depth. It's not, uh, you know, a, a, a nihilism. It's not an abyss. But the depth of being grounded in God is not something he presumes is completely open. And that's the role of prayer in the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. And so the death drive is replaced by life and the Holy Spirit and all that we mean by that. Uh, communion with others. You know, if we had to, do, to place these two types of persons, the person cut off from God, alienated from God, alienated from other people, alienated even from within. He's, what is being described is the interplay of nothing, of, of, a, of a, a, a kind of force for death, as if it is life. And so life now is taken up in, uh, through Christ who displaces, I think, that no longer are we in pursuit. And Paul specifically drops the language of I in chapter 8. Oh, interesting. I hadn't noticed that, that before. That, it, uh, uh, that, that the I is not there, but it returns. This is also back to Genesis. There is no I prior to the fall. But prior to the fall, there is corporate language. In chapter 8, there is this corporate language 
that we are found in Christ. And so it is a, you know, who we are, I think, first of all, that what is being described here is not simply an isolated individual. That may be true in chapter 7, that you have an isolated individual. But in being redeemed, we're redeemed into a corporate body, the body of Christ. And so the image is no longer the imaginary ego. The image is the image of Christ. This is the one who uh, is now you know, what we're in pursuit of. Paul also no longer uses the same word. It will, in some English translations, don't do this for us. But desire is not there in chapter 8. And you'll find this in some English translations. They'll go ahead and translate the word. But the covetousness, the desire that's there in chapter 7 is gone. And so if you talk about this in Lacanian terms, you know, the desire, for, for Lacan, desire is everything. You know, you, if you got rid of desire, well, that's the, that's the life force for them, you know, that, that everything is under. I think that Paul then gives us hope, literally, that in what displaces desire is not this driving, immediate, you know, thing that you encounter in the visual. And the visual here in the mirror stage in Genesis 3, that she saw that it was good for eating, good for food, that we are dealing with a spectral relation to the self. That, uh, that is, that's the problem with the two registers. That the law is in the world of the symbolic. The ego is in the world of the, the, the spectral. You can't coordinate those two registers. By definition, Lacan says, the ego is frustration in its essence. Mm. It's frustration in its essence because you can't get to the spectral through the symbolic. But in Paul, I think then that desire, that, that exponential frustrated desire is undone through uh, Christian hope, through Christ. And then in chapter 8, in place of the law, he cries out, Abba, Father, that now we have a relationship to God that displaces what he has called a punishing, you know, that's the beginning of chapter 8, that we've been rescued from this punishing presence. That, well, what is the punishment? It's not a future punishment. It's what he's just described, that it's the fruit of taking up death, that this is undone in Christ. And so we are co-participants in the Father through Abba, in the Son, who is the image, and in the Holy Spirit, then, who is life-giving. Well, that's terrific, Paul. That, that, uh, that, that brings a depth dimension out in soteriology, that it's uh, not difficult to see the, the to make a bad Lacanian joke, it's not difficult to see the lack uh, of such a theology uh, in, in much of what one finds on the shelves. And so, uh, I thank you very much for this research and for sharing it with us and for writing the book uh, mm-hmm. of clearly a labor of love. Uh, and I would encourage our listeners to uh, avail themselves of it at their earliest convenience. But since we're talking about um, salvation in terms of this deliverance from frustrated individuality into uh, 
communal hope. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about the Forging Plowshares Initiative, uh, what y'all are doing, what the kind of organizing vision is, uh, and perhaps where our listeners could go to learn more about it. Well, if you visit Forging Plowshares, and I've spelled plowshares in the archaic form, P-L-O-U-G-H, forgingplowshares.org. And what the idea is that it is uh, aimed at establishing peace, the peaceable kingdom. Um, What I've just described, I think, is summed up in that we can arrive at peace inwardly, that we can we no longer need to be in this violent, agonistic struggle. You know, what is the uh, anatomy of violence? Where does violence uh, come from? Well, ultimately, it comes from within ourselves, that, that uh, we're violent because uh, that is the, the very way in which human subjectivity is grounded. And so, well, once you, once you recognize, oh, we, we can actually live at peace with ourselves at one another, and this is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, a, a new way of being human. And so the forging plowshares is obviously from the passage, you know, that, that they shall turn their swords into plowshares, that we can begin to live out this peaceable sort of life and kingdom. And the, the, the organic nature of what we're doing, this began here. It, it's a group that meets here locally in, in my house. We do house church. We have various activities. You know, we're kind of trying to do life together. So it's, that's the center of this organism that is forging plowshares that then is reaching out to uh, through our online stuff we do on with through plowshares bible institute we're offering classes right now we have a class running on matthew jason rodenbeck is teaching that we have students all over you know we have a student in india mexico students in the united states and so it and and very much i'd say that these people who are taking classes it's it's not a formal it's not like a normal uh, you know, uh, brick, mo- brick and mortar sort of school, but it, I, I, that these are people who are part of our community, I feel like. And so the, the community is local, but it's also extended to, to various people uh, through the blogs and the podcasts that, that we do. I've done several with you. And so we feel like there's a community that, is, uh, that we've reached out to. Uh, through you know the uh, the media of the internet. Well, that's terrific. We'll we'll have uh, links in the show notes for uh, the website, the blog, the podcast, and of course the book. All right, all right. So, Paul, in our our usual broadcast format, uh, we like to end the show with a segment we call "Treasures Old and New." Um, speaking of nods to biblical passages and uh what we what we do is we we have someone select uh an old book and a new book and of course they can uh define the the uh, the 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 sort of timelines of old and new however they they so choose um but just two books one one relatively old and one relatively new um 
that they would recommend to our listeners that they think our listeners would benefit from. And so um, uh, I, I, I want to put it to you this week. Uh, what, what are a couple of books that you think um, were either that were helpful to you or, or um, foundational for your own thinking um, that you would recommend for our listeners to read? Yeah, this is, you, you warned me this was coming and my journey has been so bizarre. Uh, first of all, being in Japan that I've kind of struck out in a direction that, uh, I think that there was no guide for me. In other words, I can't say, oh, I read this book and it changed me. Uh, I think that as far as the peaceable kingdom, the work of Stanley Howard was, uh, that, and he's always working in, in a kind of shorter format and, but his his work on I think he has a book by that name, doesn't he? The Peaceable Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, he does. So he he lays out I think in a in a very forceful, forthright, accessible way, uh, the language of nonviolence. Um, I think that it, it, so I don't have a singular book, but you can you can read maybe the peaceful kingdom if you're just starting out is not a bad place to start i used to use it use that some in the, in the class uh, a developed the developed understanding of that uh I, I think is there i mean Howard is developing john howard yoder um and so there's a whole body of literature i think that uh, uh, that a theological literature that maybe is most fully developed by James McClendon in his trilogy. Uh, but you, to understand McClendon, you almost have to put him in place. If I had to go back to an old theologian, uh, there is no book, but Irenaeus is doing what I think is most representative of what the early church fathers were involved in, and it's linked into my own understanding of sin as a deception, a lie, and a reorientation to life. And so uh, I think that going back to an atonement theory that in some way bypasses developments in Anselm, Calvin, Luther, uh, that goes back to an original New Testament understanding. So that's a, those, are, those are vague answers. Uh, you know, to, to my own development, because I have a hard time just picking up a book and say, oh, here, read this. This is, this is what changed my life. Because in a way, it was, uh, it was the process of being in Japan and encountering the various readings. I was, I was isolated there a little bit at uh, Scuba University where we lived, and I began reading postmodern writers like uh, Derrida and uh, Giorgio Ogamban. Uh, that in and of themselves are not very helpful. But if you can plug them in then to this larger conversation, I think it's quite revolutionary. Thank you so much, Paul, for being our guest this week. Uh, you can find us, Systematically Podcast, on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts. If you, if you get to Apple Podcasts and you find yourself listening to this show, please... Uh, if you have time and inclination, do us a favor and give us a rating or a comment and perhaps leave us a review. Uh, share us on social media. If there's particular episodes you find especially fascinating, uh, throw it up on Twitter or Facebook and uh, see if some of your friends might benefit from it as well. Um, we're on Twitter and at SystematicPod. 
Uh, our Gmail address is systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. If you have, uh, if you're a listener and you have recommendations of things you'd like to hear the gang talk about or guests you'd like to see us have on the show, uh, drop us a, a, a message either on Twitter or on, on Gmail. Uh, our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 uh, from Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Uh, thank you, Trent Reznor, for your Creative Commons license. Uh, that is our show, and we will be back with the uh, full gang next time. So long. Bye.